welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. All right, and welcome back to another episode of Brain Tools. This week, we're going to be talking about reading. Can talk about your brain on reading, why it's harder to read these days, why you might be struggling to pick up a book and what you can do to improve that and improve the way you read with four practical brain tools. Of course, always joined by my co-host, Kieran. Welcome back to another episode. Good to see you. How are you, my friends? Good to see you too, my friend. I'm, I'm splendid. Uh, played golf last night, uh, played some night golf, couldn't see. It was really interesting, but uh, I tell you what, been diving into a bit of reading lately. So this uh, this this topic has come at a phenomenal time. Timing, contextual, a bit of night golf. Do you lose the balls at night? Mate, I feel like I, that's a big risk. This is how I judge how well golf's going. It's about how many balls you lose, and it's all about minimizing that. It's not about the score. The only score I care about is mm-hmm. balls lost, uh, and that's Very the way that we're doing it. Yeah, mate, you've got to be. Mate, they're bloody expensive as well. Like the moment you start thinking about <laughs> how much a yeah. ball actually costs, it's ridiculous. But enough about my golf stuff. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm going pretty well, and I'm also very excited, quite excited, actually, for today in particular uh, and for reading. It's, can I give you the reason for why I'm excited? You can You can give me five million reasons. I'll give you a couple of reasons. Okay. Well, I'm not going to give you five million. <laughs> <I> <laughs> no, physically too long. Too long. Come <laughs> up with that. That's an insane list. But I will give you uh, one or two. Uh, the, the primary reason is so many people I know in my life personally, a lot of my family, a lot of my friends, um, even some, some co-workers from – my prior workplace find reading at the moment really, really hard. They're, they're actually struggling to sit down with books. And I know a couple of people I've given books to who've just told me they haven't read them. I gave them a book at Christmas <laughs> and they've told me, Sam, I'm so sorry. Looked at me in the eye, Sam, I'm so sorry. I just haven't been able to read a single page. So there's, there's, there's discord going on with people who do want to read but are struggling to read. Can I ask, in those conversations, out of curiosity, what's, mm-hmm. what, what is the main reason? What are they struggling with particularly? A lot of it is and we're going to cover this today, attention and the difficulty with sitting down and reading and dedicating the time to do it. They either convince themselves that, you know, I'm too busy, I can't do it, or what I've actually noticed um, specifically uh, with the people just just around me, my really, really intimate circle, is they'll read for two or three pages and then they'll become distracted. And we are going to cover that why, but that's what I've noticed. I totally, I totally agree with you. Even like when I'm reading, for example, we're constantly bombarded with so many things taking our attention. It's so hard to actually sit down and read. But on that note of just uh, of actually giving gifts to uh, family members and so on with books, welcome to every Christmas where I give a book to my mum and yeah. dad and it never gets read. I'm like, oh, they'll love this book. This is like I've curated, I've carefully selected this. And then I literally see it in the same position when we yeah. unwrap the presents a year later. I'm like, I, I probably should change change my ways. Uh, oh, don't you love that? <laughs> hey, Dad, how'd that book go? What book? <laughs> don't remember it. And I think on that note of like why people are struggling as well, I think also what probably comes into it is like we're constantly told 
you know, in marketing around, you know, uh, knowledge, how many CEOs and how many successful people read heaps. And it's something that people also like to signal as well, which is like, I'm sure you've had a conversation with someone where they're like, oh yeah, how many books have you read? Yeah, 65 million. And you're like, oh, Cool. But even that conversation makes you feel bad or feel negative emotion because you might not be reading as much. And so while that is obviously a pressure point, there obviously is merit to reading. And I think if we leverage one of the the greats, Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand man, uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, we like him and his mental models, but he's got a quote that, that really resonates with me and I think will resonate with you, which is, in my whole life, I have known no wise people who didn't read all the time, none, zero. And I think that's a really powerful one because his point more than anything is that we've got this wealth of knowledge across humanity, which is known as collective intelligence. Basically that we don't have to learn stuff that's come before us or relearn it. It's already there and it's already living in books. And you know now it's on Google, right? So there's so much information. So I think today uh, is all about underscoring obviously the utility of reading, but more importantly to read so things stick. Because when you really think about how many books you can read in your lifetime, there's not a lot, right? You know, read 10 books a year, live till 80, you've got maybe 600 books you can read. So you wanna actually read so stuff sticks and you uh, obviously need to make it count. So excited to dive into this episode, I dare say. Very excited. And it's such a good point. I think about all the people I have amazing conversations with. And a lot of those conversations are triggered by reading, reading itself. Absolutely. And I think it all starts off with a really interesting thing when, when I was diving into this. And I think you'll like this, which is, you know, reading in reality is not something our brains were, and I say this apparently, innately born to do. Like when you think about it from a you know evolutionary basis, we love Darwinian theory. We love going through that. But, you know, our innate ability probably was more from a verbal communication. So hearing sounds and seeing images because that was necessary to survive, right? It was the sensory perceptive sensory perception and cues of immediate danger. But writing and reading appears to be learned skills and a human invention, much in the same way we went through, you know, the the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and looking at basic tools as the agricultural revolution. So I think as a starting point, it's like we've learned this recently and, you know, probably correlated with neocortex and so on and so forth. But I think that's a, an interesting point to, to note. Very interesting point that, yeah, it is something we've picked up. And then, Speaking about um, learning things instantly, I'm, I want to talk really briefly about instant rewards versus effortful rewards when it comes to reading. Yeah. Because it's, it's a big one right now. And the analogy to make is the difference between ordering takeaway and junk food versus sitting down, pulling out ingredients, finding a recipe and cooking a healthy meal for yourself. In this situation, the junk food is the media we consume on our phones. It's the, the TikTok videos or the Instagram photos or the short blog posts um, versus the healthy meal being this long form book, right? Uh, and the reason I bring it up is because when we talk about things in the context of learned behavior, the instant rewards provided by digital media make it so much harder to read because they provide this instantaneous feedback mechanism, this dopamine-driven media consumption versus long-form reading, which is much more effortful, requires uh, a lot more cognitive effort to do and, and to process. And so in a way, we, we've kind of learned to have our, our media consumption patterns or information consumption patterns hijacked by dopamine and the devices we use. We're, we're Pavlov's, Pavlov's dogs to our phones. Uh, I love that connection. Just uh, just a little just a little drop of Pavlovian conditioning in there. I love it. And I also love your analogy, by the way. But what is making me sad is basically you're telling me don't have Uber Eats, don't have Deliveroo. 
And mate, I, I, hey. I like that stuff though. I like it. <laughs> You're allowed to have that, but it's all about uh, moderation as many of the religions practice. But it, and it's also about understanding that, you know, the, the faster process and we have when we consume that is rewiring our brain um, to, to prefer that versus the slower processing required by reading. And that's why a lot of people are finding it so hard uh, to sit down and read a book right now because their brain is craving that instant satisfaction. Absolutely. And I think you raised such a good point because like reading or like learning as we spoken, we've spoken about so many times before, it's meant to be effortful. It's meant to be hard. Mm. And so you can sort of fall into the trap of the illusion of learning or the illusion of knowledge because, as you said, you're consuming yep. so much more from a quantum perspective of information, but are you actually retaining it? And I think that links really nicely to almost like an equation of reading, right? Which is because if we're looking at uh, reading as a function, again, maths tutor, let's go. <laughs> Seeing post-traumatic stress on your face right now. <laughs> Why are we going back to the Trinity days? <laughs> but I think it's like if we go to create, you know, reading as a function, it's basically a quantity and a quality perspective, right? Quantity being the speed at which you can read and quality being the comprehension, which is do you actually understand this and can you retain it? And so I think, as you said, there's always going to be a cost. If you're going to be increasing your quantity, does your quality or your comprehension go down? And I think using that as a bit of a framework can be really, really useful, particularly in terms of how we read, if that makes sense. It makes, it makes perfect sense. So uh, having that framework, what is it? You nailed it. So I'm going to walk you through. We love pyramids here, right? So we're going to go from like, you know, a pyramid of low, medium, and high. But I think when we think about things like reading and things like attention we spoke about previously, I feel like we take for granted that it's an emergent property, right? And I'm always mindful of reduction, like reducing into components. But when you actually take reading and you reduce it into its components, we take for granted how much goes into it. So if I start at the baseline level, right, low-level reading, low-level reading involves accurate word processing. Right, which is we can convert letters into speeds and sounds. I can I recognize words like you and I now sitting here. We're not going to be like, oh, what is this letter? What is this word? It comes automatically, right? But that's low level processing. Again, many issues with dyslexia, many issues when it comes to reading and so on. People with brain injuries and so on obviously stem mm. from an inability in this first section. But then when you go a section up, right, is it's all good recognizing individual words, individual letters. But how do you actually bring them together? And that's middle level. Can we string words together to form sentences and understand a language's syntax? And that's the major difficulty people have with learning new languages. We have English. We try and learn a different language. There's a different syntax accordingly. And that is obviously where the last level, which is high level, it's all about meaning. Like, what do these paragraphs actually mean? What's the point of reading this? And when you really think about those three levels, reading in its stricter sense becomes actually quite a complicated thing that we actually take for granted because you have to get through these levels in order to get to the big question, which is, why am I reading this? Yeah, well, it makes sense why it's so much effort, right? The amount of cognitive processing you just described is crazy. Absolutely. And I think, as you said, like that whole idea of attention becomes so, so important when we're, uh, when we're looking at reading. Well, it does become incredibly important, especially in the context of requiring attention in order to sit down and be able to focus on a good book. And I mentioned before the, the idea of like fast consumption media or quick consumption media and how accessible it is on our phones and our digital devices um, there was actually a fantastic book by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows came out a couple of years ago, looking at the research uh, around this in particular in the neuroscience realm, mm, The Shallows. And the analogy uh, in this case is kind of like snorkeling versus diving. Um, so effectively what's happening is every time we are using these devices, we're, we're rewiring our brain for shallow concentration and task switching. 
Uh, for example, when you're sitting down with your phone and, and you're flicking through a social media uh, platform or if you're going through your emails on your phone or on your computer or if you've got 20 tabs open or if you're watching YouTube <laughs> and clicking between got them. 20 tabs open which right people now. Do. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, tr- the trouble is every time we're engaging this activity, we are sending a signal to our brain um, to wire the pathways associated with it. And the pathways associated, the, the networks associated, the connections associated with it are around task switching, switching between different bits of information, different bits of content, switching between uh, posts as you scroll or between tabs or between ideas. And as a result, if you kind of imagine your your memory and your concentration as this Coke bottle, right, um, what we're doing is at the bottleneck at the top, where information's flowing through, which is your bottleneck, your short-term memory or your working memory and the bottom being your long-term memory, um, we are increasing our ability to switch and to take in more sources of information and we're increasing the size of that bottleneck up the top. But in order to do so, we're actually sucking up some of the concentration and the deeper memory from the bottom. So as a result, our, our ability to concentrate is getting shallower but broader to be able right. to switch across more mediums to be able to flick between more sources of information. And that's really not conducive to reading, which is single format. It's one page where it's linear flow of information and you can't jump between links on a screen while you're reading a book. I love that. I think, I think it's reminding like people don't really, and I don't appreciate the cost, right? It was always this breadth mm. and depth argument. But again, it comes back to the comprehension, which is like, if you're reading you know, would you rather read 60 articles and remember one or read one book and remember lots of it, right? And I think that's the the tension yeah. that we're caught in uh, constantly. And I think that links really nicely just very briefly in terms of, you know, we talk about attention and obviously the prefrontal cortex being so vital in it. That's, you know, where you're using your executive function and control. Um, but very quickly for those that are interested in interrogating brain areas further, because again, we always talk about anatomy and function being very inextricably linked, just some areas of the brain that are involved in reading. Um, area is what we call the inferior frontal gyrus. It's all about articulation and word analysis. We've got the parietal temporal area, which is all about word analysis and occipital temporal word formation. All I basically wanted to, to put forward there, if you want to interrogate that further, go for it. But it's just to note again that it's always really nice to say, hey, this area of the brain is for this particular function. The reality is it's a lot more complex in that, especially when it comes to reading. Like there's up to six different areas. So always think about reading as a really holistic thing and an interconnectivity of cognition, emotion, memory, and physiology, especially when you read something like fiction, right? Like I read a memoir recently and I was feeling like a lot of emotion. I was feeling quite sad. So it's not as if this is a purely academic logical thing when you read, right? It's very much a holistic uh, lens and therefore it requires the whole brain, not just parts of the brain, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And it actually really neatly aligns with a lot of the research and a lot of the fMRI scanning they've done uh, on people's brains as they read stories and narrative transportation. And you can see in real time, I don't have a scan here to portray to my audio listeners, but you can see in real time the different cortices in the brain associated with movement, sensation, touch, emotion, processing, all light up. Um, across the entire brain as they follow a character's journey. So it's, like you said, really holistic and, and complex in terms of the networks it activates. Also warrants a question. why, If it's so much effort to read, which it is a little bit of effort, why read? What's Sell me. 
Sell me this pen. I'm ready. I'm ready, Sam. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've noted. I'm, <laughs> replace my pen. <laughs> um, this is how Kieran conducts job interviews. Just like Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Just walks in. Hey, here are a bunch of pens. Sell me it. <laughs> oh, I thought I was meant to be in HR. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Everyone's in. No, 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 no. But no, no, so this- why, why reading? So, why reading? Okay. What advantage does uh, Hemingway have over him? Hemsworth is, is my cheeky little None. dig there. None. None, if you're a, a young female fan. Well, the recent studies suggest that reading fiction in particular is incredibly beneficial to your brain. It makes your brain better. And here's how. The Emory University Center for Neuropolicy ran a study that showed just amazing, how amazing reading friction was for your brain. What they did is they scanned people's brains with an fMRI machine. So run them through the fMRI machine, scan their brain to, to kind of get an overview of where it was at in time. Then they asked these same people every night, read some sections from this book called Pompeii by Robert Harris. Really, really famous fiction book, brilliantly written every night for nine days. And then in the next morning, they came back and scanned their brains with that same fMRI machine. What they found was astounding. In the following day, their brains, when scanned, showed heightened connectivity uh, across specifically the left temporal cortex, which processes language and comprehension, but more incredulously, across the central sulcus, which is this part of your brain associated with sensations and movement. What that means is the result of them reading led to increased connectivity across their brain. It made their brain function better by having these improved connections. And that was just from a single night of reading. That was the outcome the next morning, which is amazing. You think about it, every time you read, you're improving the connectivity in your brain. Pretty potent. That is incredible. I think underscoring the importance then, you know, of the balance between nonfiction and fiction, right? Um, but also the impact it can have on any individual and how they feel and how interconnected it is, um, is, is pretty amazing. I, I just, while it's popped in fresh into my head, I read that, that you know, we've got about 10 to the 15 um, neurons uh, in our head, right? And it's just about 100 billion. That's the same as uh, the stars in the Milky Way. And when you get that complexity of how many neurons and the connections, it makes sense how you said how there's language comprehension, it's different parts of the brain, it's all, all coming together um, quite holistically. So I really, really love that um, neuropolicy um, study. It's a fantastic study. It's a fantastic study. And just one more quick one before we break and go to brain tools. There was another study which I found even more compelling in 2013 by David Kidd Sell and me. Emmanuel Castaner <laughs> in the really prestigious science journal. So they performed five experiments, uh, ran some similar brain imaging um, processes, and they demonstrated that when you read fiction, you strengthen your theory of mind, which is your ability to understand both your own and other people's uh, mental states, including thoughts, beliefs, emotions, intentions. And what that is is basically EQ. So when you're reading fiction every night, you are improving your emotional intelligence, which we know has a massive flow-on effect to almost everything in your life, your communication, your relationships, uh, your ability to be effective at your job, to lead. So if that's not enough of a case for reading, I don't know what is. I'm buying five pens off you. I think think you've sold it so well. (laughs) <laughs> and two books as well. And I think that wraps it up so nicely, as you said, because we've covered sort of, you know, the what of reading, we've looked at it inside the brain, we've talked about obviously yeah. the, the difficulties uh, obviously in reading, but that leads us to, as we always do, the most practical part of the episode, which is the brain tools to improve your ability to read. So Sam, I reckon, uh, I reckon we dive into those. It's time to get some brain tools. 
And now we get to the brain tool section where we're going to give you four very practical uh, science-backed brain tools for improving the way you read and getting back into it. But before we do that, there is a bit of context that we need to cover first. All right, Sam. I I have Rant to. It's, Rant I, I love how you heard me just do this deep exhale and you're like, okay, here it's coming in hot right now. <laughs> nope. No one has ever exhaled like that and then not had an opinion afterwards yeah, <laughs> in the I, history of mankind. I've definitely got an opinion. Um, the one thing I just want to cover because I think when I literally typed in reading, right, into Google, <laughs> the most potent like suggestion was speed reading and the number of courses that popped up were all about speed reading. Now, I'm not here to denigrate um, you know, people that are doing courses around speed reading. Again, I just want to make it really, really clear that it's, it's a bit of a myth. And the reason I say put it as a myth is we have to remember the equation that we spoke about, which is reading quality, like if we were reading overall as a function of your quality and your quantity. Now, you can increase your speed, but you've always got to remember that if you do increase your speed, there is going to be an issue with the quality or your comprehension and retention. Now, it's the research is has not showed that you can decouple these things yet. And if you can, you'd be an anomaly. So speaking to the vast majority of the population here, we need to be really, really mindful that there are some really clear physical, functional, and anatomical restraints that make it almost really makes it really difficult, right? To speed read. And the two that I want to just go forth with you is the eye. You know, the the place that actually resolves detail is called the fovea. And it's quite small. It's actually an inch in diameter at reading distance. And so this is a physical constraint that means that your information per fixation, what a phrase, is already capped. Right, unless you get a bionic eye and just like, whoa, whoa, let's do this. That's obviously a physical constraint. And then the second one you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about attention. I mean, working memory. We can only hold so much information in our brain at any given time. So while I don't want to denigrate too much, even though I've already lost so many friends by saying no speed reading, I just want to put forward that the brain tools that we're going to give you are all about how to actually get started reading, but also improve comprehension. Because the reality is you'd much rather remember more of what you read than read, as we said, a lot of breadth and remember absolutely none of it because then it's going to have no impact on your life. And this whole idea of self-directed neuroplasticity, no, doesn't happen. Oh, rant over. <laughs> Let it out. Let it out. Sit on the couch. Please, lie down. Tell me how you really feel. Oh, I need some therapy, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So basically, read better, not faster. Spot on. And I think that's a really nice segue into brain tool number one, which uh, I'd like to give you, Sam, which is brain tool number one, slice and dice your reading. Okay. You, you ready? You've got you ready? me there, yeah. All right, I, love, I saw you physically leaning, so I'm really happy right now. Now, I think the key thing to remember, and we spoke about this at the top, that people are finding it so difficult to read. And generally speaking, there are a few reasons, but one of the most pronounced reasons is that people get really overwhelmed at the amount of reading they think they need to do. Not that they have oh, to totally. do or they do, mm-hmm. but it's, again, it's that difference between expectation and perception and what is actually real. And as a result, the path of least resistance, if you're overwhelmed, is to do nothing. It's not to read. And so they deprioritize it. And so the solution that I want to give forth that will help people actually take the step to begin reading is to slice and dice it. It's simply to break it down and say, hey, if I want to achieve 10 books read in a year, what does that actually look like on a daily basis? Because if you can find congruity between a yearly goal, a monthly goal, and then a daily goal, it becomes a lot easier to form a habit. And shout out to episode four on habits. So Sam, can I run through this you this little quiz this about implementation about how to break this down? Give me the quiz. I'm ready. So, Sam, first question for you. This year, how many books do you want to read? Just as a bit of a ballpark. One. Ten. 
10. Okay. Better, better answer. I'm sure you probably want to do more, maybe less, but let's just use 10 as the marker, okay? How All many right. pages on average do you reckon is in a book? Well, 100 to 300? 100 to 300? Hey, take, take the middle. It's 200, right? So the average is around 200. So let's go back to some multiplication, my friend. If you want to read 10 books and there's 200 pages in a book, how many pages overall do you need to read in a year? 2,000. I'm so proud of you. 10 One, points two, for Griffin. Kumon helps. Now, we're at 2,000, okay? Now, if you break that down, then you ask yourself, okay, if I've got 2,000 pages to read, how many do I have to do every single day? So 2,000 divided by 365, again, this is not a math lesson, but it's basically five to six pages a day. And if you really think about how many minutes it takes to read a page, two to three minutes, what you end up coming to is to read that six pages a day takes you about 15 minutes a day. And 15 minutes a day across a year, again, tiny habits, small things that compound over time to achieve great things, leads to 10 books in total. If you say to me, Sam, hey, Kieran, I actually want to read 20, just double it. That's 30 minutes a day for 20 books. And you apply this accordingly. So in order to implement this in your life, you literally break it down, set your goal, which is step one, break it down into those smaller pieces and say, hey, this is exactly what I want to achieve. And if you do that, you're going to retain a heap more, but you're actually going to take make a step to actually read. And as we get to later, I think there's a quote by Naval that really resonates probably with both you, both you and I. He says, read what you love until you love to read. So fiction is also fine, right? As we said before, you don't have to read all these amazing nonfiction books. Do that and you'll actually form a habit, which means you'll get more done in less time. And that's brain tool number one, slice and dice your reading. Ooh, I like it. What a great way to uh, reduce that friction of commencing reading because you're so worried about where to start. Boom, boom, boom. Shake the room. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. I know. I know you hate me. I know you want to probably edit that out, but we're going we're gonna to keep that in. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see if that makes it past the chop. But, uh, that might be a situation. All right, we need it. We need to drive by this very quickly. But I Dad think you've joke. now got the you've now got the, the the floor, my friend. Brain tool number two. I'm ready for you. Don't mind a bit of a dad joke. Uh, speaking of making it easier to get started with reading, because I know that's where a lot of people find find the most daunting is picking up and starting. Is brain tool number two, which is retrain your reading brain. And the problem is most of us are out of practice with reading. You know, if you don't read for a month, two months, three months, the the connections in your brain, the synapses, the networks associated with reading, they literally atrophy, okay? They, they demyelinate, they become weaker. And so there's so much more effort required with picking back up that habit with reading. So every time you read, it's now really hard, which deters you away from reading. And the solution is to build up a really tiny reading practice. And it sounds really dumb, but if you want to get back into reading, you kind of need to kickstart your brain. You need to restart that engine and and you know put it through its motions a little bit. Um, so a neuroscientist, actually, Marianne Wolf, she did this because recently she she found even after studying literature all her life and loving books that she was just unable to sit down and read. And what she effectively did is this, and this is what you can do: force yourself to read uh, a novel for twenty minutes every night in an environment with no stimulation, no screens, for two weeks. A great way to do this would be have a reading time at bed. Spend 20 minutes each night reading. And what this will do is it'll reactivate those neural pathways associated with reading. It'll build back some strength in them that'll make it much, much easier afterwards, after you've done your two-week period, to just be able to read sporadically. Um, And the more you do it, the stronger these reading circuitry gets. So that's brain tool number two, uh, retrain your reading brain. So good, mate. And I think, as you said, that ties one and two together so nicely. It's almost like one is the strategy, the planning, and two is actually the tangible tactic, like the execution. Yep. And to your point of like 15, 20 minutes a day, I think 
And if, if this doesn't necessarily, you know, if you don't trust yourself individually, something that, you know, we've spoken about before is, you know, we talk about social accountability a lot. Um, and mm-hmm. myself and my girlfriend, we um, actually have done sort of a reading practice together where, you know, we would actually sit down, read for 20, 30 minutes. And in two weeks, I think um, my girlfriend, she read Atomic Habits, um, got all the way through it. And it was that sort of social accountability, but doing it together. You know, it's much, much easier to do things collectively than it is individually, especially when you're struggling to do it at the start. So that could be a way to tie it in, um, you know, obviously based on what you said as well. Yeah, exactly right. That's a, that's a good way to do it. The other way to do it, I know um, my partner has personally implemented uh, her own nighttime practice and as part of it, she has reading it and as a result, she's just chewing through books and there's momentum, right? She's now built up a bit of reading momentum. She's finding it much easier to pick up more books. I love it. Absolutely brilliant. Well, first two brain tools down, you're hand passing it to me for brain tool number three. You ready? Let's do it. Brain tool number three. Brain tool number three is annotate, mate. Okay. I know rhymes. I know I'm in that sort of ilk, but annotate, mate. And I think the big thing that this brain tool is looking to solve is that people don't really read actively, they read passively. Like as we said before, and you made such a good point earlier on about attention, right? We're reading a lot of you know junk food, so to speak, but we're not retaining any of it. And if you do that, you're not going to actually remember what you read. And so if you don't remember that, then clearly it's not going to impact your way of life, right? It's going to be enjoyment in the moment, but it's not going to actually have retention for your body to actually use that moving forward. So what we want to do is actually move to more active learning, move to more active reading. Mm -hmm. And we simply do that by creating an annotation system, right? Now, this annotation system can work in any way, shape or form. There's so many out there. But Sam, I wanted to share with you sort of how I've interpreted it for, quote unquote, my own annotation system, if I can give it to you. Yeah, love it. Love a note-taking system. What you got? So basically, if the next book you pick up, right, say you picked up a book, there are four key things uh, that always sort of try and resonate with me. The first one is next to anything that I read that um, is, I call it a link. And that's L. I put L, I'll circle it, and I'll write a little note. And L refers to link because what we want to do is every previous book you've read, you want to try and make connections to the book you're currently reading. And that's known as syntopical reading. If you do that, you're more likely to remember the current information and the previous information. It's akin to, um, you know, walking in from home, trying to put your code up on a peg and the peg doesn't exist. If the peg exists, it's a lot easier to hang the code on accordingly. And so that becomes a link and you'll find that you'll be able to create a nice network in your head where everything is interrelated. So that's L, link. Ooh, I like that analogy too. Use the pegs that are already there. Thanks, mate. I tried my best. Now, the next one is Q. So Q stands for question. So anytime I'm reading and I'm like, oh, I've got a question that I want to answer, I put that there. Anything that I'm curious about or I just simply don't understand. And I think this is a really important part because when we read books, we have a tendency to find answers. But in reality, we want to actually find questions because, as we said, questions can exist without answers, but answers can't exist without questions. And I think that becomes a really important framework to then allow your curiosity. You're more likely to remember the question you ask than actually the answer accordingly. Now, the last two that I just want to go through with you is A. A stands for action. So anytime I read something that I'm like, hey, this is something that I actually think can, I can build into my life, almost like a brain tool. Um, I write A, I write the action, and then I'll put that, um, put that down somewhere where I want to actually implement it. And then D is, stands for disagree. I think when we read, we can have a tendency to think that the person we're reading is the Messiah and all-knowing truth. And the reality is you might disagree with them. And if you actually do disagree, write that down, write down why you disagree, and you're more likely to remember that point. And as you do these four things, they're actually synergistic. They all work together because you're being active, but you'll find you'll connect the links to the questions, the questions to the actions, the disagrees to the links, and you start to form a nice network. And what this means is you're actively engaging with the material. 
you have more thinking per unit time. And the more you think, the more you remember. And the more you remember, the more likely it is to change your life. So, mate, that is my brain tool number three, annotate, mate. Annotate, mate. And that's a great system for doing it. I think the, the key message there as well is just annotate in general, right? If, you, if you're reading, otherwise, as Anne-Lord Leconf says from Nest Labs, it's like trying to fill up a bucket with holes in the bottom. Information just flowing out. Such an analogy. And I, I, don't, I don't want to skim over. I really enjoyed that semi-French accent then as well. I think, uh, I think uh, everyone, if we've got French listeners there, they're going to be very, very happy. <laughs> if you're listening in France, uh, enchanté. Okay. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. Um, brings us into brain tool number four and the last brain tool uh, on reading in particular, and that is the reading chair or the reading space. So the problem is to to be addressed. It's not just about your attention. It's also your environment. So your, your environment totally controls all the visual cues uh, and the stimuli you have, which can break your reading habit. They can break your ability to sit and front of the page. I'll give you an example. You're sitting in front of the TV in a living room with people talking in the background and your phone next to you buzzing and your laptop on your lap with a book in front of you. How hard do you think it's going to be to read? Really difficult, right? Really difficult. You've got all these all these cues in the background constantly nagging at your attention. So the solution is to find yourself a space or a chair where you read and dedicate that as your reading spot. I know this sounds a little bit old school, like a little bit of grandma wisdom, but here's why you should do that according to neuroscience. Number one, it creates an environmental cue, which means when you go to your reading chair and you pick up your book, your brain now associates that chair and that environment with that activity, reading, and therefore you're much more likely to find it easier to read in that environment. Number number two is you can set up a distraction-free environment. If you've got a reading chair and it's away from everything else, um, you're able to remove all those attentional distractions and cues. And number C is it builds up a context-driven behavior. So every time you see that reading chair, that reading space, you instantly associate it with reading and it reminds you to read, so you're much more likely to do that. Now to implement it, really simple. Now step number one is to dedicate a space for it. Find a chair, comfortable chair that's away from your TV, from your living room, from other people. Number two, remove all your distractions. So like I said, no digital media, no screens in sight. Uh, if you have to, leave your phone out of the room. And if you're really, really struggling still to instill this habit and this practice and use this brain tool, you can even set up a timer on your phone, leave it in a room adjacent to you and not leave your chair until that timer goes up. So that's brain tool number four. It is get yourself a reading space, distraction-free, and use that as the trigger for, for when you read. That is awesome. That is so, so good. I love it because that, that point you raised on context, right? Because we have a tendency to anchor emotions, behaviors, thoughts, and beliefs to environments. And I'm reminded of that, that sort of quote that structure shapes behavior, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And this is a phenomenal yep. way of, as you said, structuring the desired behavior that you want, which I absolutely love. Sam, 10 points for Gryffindor. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Harry. We have you, boy. Shall we uh, go back over and quickly reiterate those brain tools before we, we wrap up? No, I don't want to. I'm kidding. Okay, of course right. we do. Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> Let's, I'm kidding. Let's start with brain tool number one, which is slice and dice your reading. In order to overcome the friction of starting to read, it's really important to break it down into manageable pieces. Actually set your goal, hey, 
how many books do you want to read in a year? Break it down into the number of pages you need to read in a year and the minutes required and schedule that into your calendar. If you do that, you are more likely to actually get it done because it's a small, tiny habit rather than I need to read a whole book, which is can be very overwhelming. And when you do start reading, leverage Naval's really, really important quote, read what you love until you love to read. It could be anything. If you love soccer, read about soccer. If you love the moon, read about the moon. And that's brain tool number one, slice and dice your reading. That's great. And, and once you've sliced and diced your reading, you figure out how much you want to do. The next step is brain tool number two, which is to re-kickstart your reading habit by retraining your reading brain, dedicating time for a certain amount of uh, weeks, maybe two weeks, three weeks, where 20 minutes every day or every night you read just to re-strengthen those neural pathways associated with it and to reactivate that habit of reading and making it much easier moving forwards. And that's brain tool number two, retrain your reading brain, uh, have a consistent daily practice for a couple of weeks to pick it back up. Love it. Absolutely. And that sort of beelines nicely into brain to number three, annotate mate. We want to make sure that when we are reading, we don't fall into the trap of the illusion of learning or the illusion of knowledge where you can consume lots, but retain very little. Actually moving to an active mode, which is annotating while you go, whether that, as Sam said, is simply writing down notes as you go or creating a more formal categorization and annotation system. You're more likely to engage with the material. You're more likely to remember it and you're more likely to build it into a habit and have it impact your behavior. Now that is brain tool number three, annotate mate. I like it. Leads into brain tool number four, uh, which is the reading chair or the reading space to really get the most out of your reading and to redevelop that habit. Find a space which you can allocate for reading, which is distraction-free, away from other people, and use that as your contextual and environmental cue to read to make it much easier to get into the book and shoot through some pages. Brain tool number four, reading space. So, so good. Well, I think those are some, if I don't say so myself, some very decent brain tools. I thought before we uh, we move on, mate, and we wrap wrap up today, mm. I'm, I'm actually curious because we've spoken about reading today. I want to know top books, right? If anyone's listening to this right now, anyone, uh, what would be, Tam, your top book that you'd recommend to another person right now to read? Given the current context and, and the way our brains have been thrown completely out for a loop, uh, I'd say it was Brain Rules by John Medina. Very practical. Ooh, why, can I ask? Uh, it's got a lot of lessons and tools in particular that I think are really, really relevant to uh, pandemic-affected brains and the way we all feel right now. Very right. What about you? I love it. Uh, mine, uh, shock, this is going to be a massive shock to you, <laughs> uh, is Principles yeah. by Ray Dalio, again, uh, yeah. sort of CEO of Bridgewater. I think as we've spoken about, you know, in terms of finding things that are very practical, can actually impact your life. I love the whole idea of first principles thinking um, and going from the root and how you can apply it to your life and business. So I would definitely recommend getting Ray Dalio's book because he also loves a lot of neuroscience, incorporates that into his book as well, which is phenomenal. Uh, it's a great book. A great episode too. Speaking yeah, very, very solid. Wrapping up, uh, 80-20 for the week. What you got? 80-20. Well, I think my 80-20 is all about collective, like leverage collective intelligence because uh, collective intelligence lives in books. And just really quickly, I mean, the average age of an author is 36 years, right? They're 36 years old when they first publish. That means if you read one book, hypothetically, you get 36 years of experience. Two books means you get a lifetime. And 10 books means you get five lifetimes. And I think the key thing is there's lots of quotes around this, but you want to learn from the dead. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. A lot of the things that have been learned already, we just need to actually go back, look at it, and discover it for ourselves. Mm, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Learn from the dead. Get that tattooed somewhere. My <laughs> 8020. On the bicep. Uh, nowhere as prophetic as that. My 8020 is the reading as a skill. 
um, to get better at it, you need to practice it and make it easier to get into that flow. Amazing. I love it. Well, as we uh, wrap up today's episode, uh, basically, uh, based on re- based on listening to this, um, if you do like the episode, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review if you can. That'd be absolutely amazing. Or follow us on Podbean, getting a lot of love from there at the moment, which is absolutely fantastic. So thank you if you are joining from there as well. Uh, second, if you're keen to find out a bit more about the research, a bit more about how we go about things uh, at Brain Tools based on this episode, you can look at and subscribe at our newsletter at www.braintools.substack.com. And then finally, the third part is we're posting Lots on Insta, lots on Instagram. So again, at Brain Tools Podcast, a lot of the tools that we speak about, there's going to be pictures there and slideshows that you can access accordingly. But Sam, those three actions, if uh, people can do that, that'd be absolutely phenomenal. And just want to thank everyone for the love they're giving us. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Very appreciative to everyone out there who's listening, liking, following along uh, with us on this journey. Can't wait to, uh, to keep growing and keep sharing the brain. Absolutely. Episode 20 down, episode 21 next week. Can't wait for it. Sounds good. Uh, See you next week. See you next week.